Hello and welcome back to another annual meeting podcast. My name is Ron LaFollette, chair of the Social Media Committee, and today we'll be talking with Roger Lewis, the recipient of the Leadership Award, as well as Dr. Coker, one of the plenary speakers, and then having a little recap of the day's top presentations. This is Jim Miner, and I'm here talking to Dr. Roger Lewis, who is getting the John Marks Research Award at, this, at the 2019 SAM meeting this year. Uh, Dr. Lewis, you've been a leader in our specialty for my whole career, and I've always looked to you uh, for your leadership and your mentorship, and it's really a pleasure for me to get the chance to talk to you. Well, uh, first of all, that's very kind, Jim. I, in thinking about the award, I think the first thing that strikes me is SAM was really the organization that gave me an opportunity to develop a reputation in my area of focus and to develop leadership skills that I've then been able to use in a variety of settings, whether it's institutional, um, national leadership, um, advocating for emergency medicine um, at the NIH and in other um, uh, venues. And it was really SAM that gave me a chance to develop the skills that then allowed me to advocate for emergency medicine and emergency medicine research um, throughout my career. Thanks, Dr. Lewis. Do you have any advice for SAM members and people getting started in their career on uh, things you've done that have have helped you get to the place you are today? Well, I think one piece of advice that I would give future leaders and folks who are just interested in developing long-term, successful, and productive academic careers uh, is to say yes to the opportunities that come your way. I've never seen people um, uh, develop uh, relationships or uh, join uh, teams uh, without saying yes. I think sometimes there's a lot of emphasis on saying no uh, and not trying too many things. My experience has been that it's really hard to tell which are the opportunities that are going to turn into the really rewarding professional um, activities. And so you should say yes to as many things um, as you can. Uh, that said, I think that emergency medicine is really characterized by tremendous camaraderie and teamwork and selflessness, and it really makes an ideal environment in which uh, young uh, academicians can launch careers. All right, next up, we'll have Dr. Keith Coker, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Michigan, uh, where he heads up the Michigan Emergency Department Improvement Collaborative and was one of our uh, plenary speakers at this year's meeting. Uh, Dr. Coker, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. So this is a really impressive uh, study and collaboration that you were able to put together, including over 1.1 million um, ED visits. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to put together this monster data set? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I appreciate you know you understanding the context and the work that goes into the project like this. And really, I'm just one of a large and deep bench working on this project. This is actually at its core a learning collaborative where we are, the mission here is to try to drive practice change and improve the quality of care delivered in emergency departments across the state of Michigan. We are actually funded by a dominant commercial insurance company in our state, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. And we started the project back in 2015. Um, and we really had to build this from the ground up, uh, recruit our sites, build our data collection infrastructure, build our reporting uh, capabilities. Um, and that required um, 
uh, a year and a half before we actually developed uh, data flow from our sites. Uh, so what we're reporting here is about one and a half years of data up through um, the end of 2017 across 15 sites. We're actually uh, a little bit bigger now. Um, and really, this is sort of the, uh, I would say, the um, initial um, performance across all the sites before we actually turned on any of our quality improvement work. Uh, so what you might see in a um, potentially standard emergency department across these quality initiatives and, and more of a real-world test environment. So can you walk us through a little bit about how you were able to compare kind of the idealized metric-based care and the the real-world care? How did you get into the heads of the ED providers that you were looking at the data from? So we definitely have some advantages in this project um, in our uh, data collection capabilities. Uh, we uh, get data, electronic data feeds from all our sites on a monthly basis where we draw from the electronic health record some basic data elements. I would sort of describe them as administrative data about each ED visit. Um, things like chief complaints and vital signs and uh, CPT codes related to the visit the diagnostic codes, disposition, those kind of things. But the advantage that we have is that we also have um, data abstractors that can go through individual charts and basically do chart review and pull out additional data elements uh, that you wouldn't get or uh, mostly serve some clinical granularity uh, in the areas where we're measuring our quality. Uh, so an example of this is in our head uh, minor head injury uh, quality initiative for adults and children, we're able to pull out some of those data elements uh, related to the decision rules, <clears throat> like the Canadian rule or the PCARN rule, such as, you know, presence or absence of vomiting, presence or absence of headache. Um, and we're able to incorporate that into the reporting that we do, that we feed back to our sites in these quality initiatives. Um, and we're doing, we're doing it at scale. Um, uh, again, for this analysis, we're looking at 15 of our sites. Um, and that's, um, from my perspective, uh, kind of a unique um, way to measure um, that probably doesn't exist uh, elsewhere. Can you talk about potential researchers who are looking to use big data sets, just the big takeaways that you've taken as far as where you are now? Yeah, I don't know if there's really a large data set that has captured um, data in this way, at least around the quality initiatives that we're focused on. Um, because, again, of this combination of having administrative data uh, combined with some clinical information from chart review. Um, I mean, there's certainly administrative data sets out there, um, but if you want to get into the business of, say, measuring against a standard like uh, some of the decision rules, like the Canadian rule or PCARN rule, um, you know, that's, I think, what's particularly unique about the MEDIC project. And then where did you find that most providers were falling out of these rules? Was it um, an initial gestalt that they were using to fall out of the rules? Or was there, um, could you get into the heads of, of what metrics people were falling out of? 
Yeah, let's let's talk through them. So um, we're focused on, I've mentioned a few times, the uh, minor head injury case scenarios uh, where, <clears throat> where as a collaborative, we decided to use the Canadian head CT rule as our standard for the adult population and PCARN for the um, pediatric population. Uh, we're also looking at uh, use of chest x-rays and some common pediatric respiratory illnesses, uh, asthma, bronchiolitis, and croup, um, and then also use of chest CTs for suspected pulmonary embolism. In that case, we're actually measuring uh, the outcome of those studies, diagnostic yield. And um, I think there's a variety of reasons why clinicians uh, may not be optimally performing against these standards. Um, I think a lot of it um, is related to penetration in the use of these um, decision aids. Um, you know, it may feel like the Canadian rule has been around a long time, and it has, um, but there really is this, you know, oftentimes large gap between when things hit um, literature and evidence and when there's actual uptake uh, of that evidence in incorporation into, you know, standard practice. Um, and I think in particular, um, for our collaborative, we service a wide range of different types of ADs. We have, um, you know, academic teaching centers, but we also have community sites, um, you know, rural sites. Um, and I think for a lot of the frontline physicians, they're just used to practicing in a certain way. And it may take a lot of um, change to convince them that this is the right way to practice. Um, and that's one of the advantages I think that a learning collaborative can bring to the table that other, other approaches to quality improvement um, have more obstacles around. And this work can certainly help justify this being applied in other settings. Where do you see this going from a within your collaborative and on a national level as far as implementing these decision aids? Yes. So, um, you know, I've described this network as a learning collaborative. Um, what makes it a learning collaborative is that we approach this work recognizing that uh, our sites and providers are at different stages of quality improvements. Uh, effectively, we have uh, individual experiments going on in each site as sites work through their process improvement. We get together um, with meetings three times a year as a group and talk through our work. And the idea here is that we learn from each other, uh, that we take what works at one site and begin to apply it at other sites. Uh, we learn to sort of package that information and disseminate it across the network. And ideally, not, not just across the network, but um, you know, in other areas of the country uh, that may be interested in some of this work, uh, I think we can speak to that audience as well. Um, and when you get into the business of quality improvement, you know, there's this large gap between oh, just use the canning rule, you would think, oh, that's all you need. You know, that's the only ingredient you need to actually change practice and actually changing practice. Um, you know, you have to understand what's at play. 
you know, what are the drivers of a particular practice pattern? Uh, for any one individual physician, it may be things like, I don't think of the rule, uh, I don't recognize the actual problem, uh, I have perceived patient and family pressures or institutional pressures uh, that I need to address that seem to trump maybe me using this uh, decision rule. Um, you know, each each um, quality initiative is a little bit different around that. Um, and you got to service those needs. And as you begin to learn how to do that process improvement, again, I think this is a advantage of a learning collaborative. You get to disseminate that work. Um, and I think ideally, you know, our vision is to be able to disseminate that more broadly as we learn from our work. Well, I'm really looking forward to some of the output that it has and the conversation that's generated online and uh, at the rest of the conference. Again, uh, Dr. Keith Coker, thank you very much for being on the podcast today and congratulations on your work. Well, I really, really appreciate the time and effort and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation with everybody else on social media. All right. Since we are live at the meeting, I am joined here by Casey Glass and Jeff Hill. And we're just going to recap kind of some sessions that we thought were interesting or noteworthy um, that happened today. Let's start off with Casey. Did you go to any sessions that thought were noteworthy? So, I mean, for me, I was browsing the schedule and I saw this morning that there was going to be a session on qualitative research. And I don't know about you, but I don't know a whole lot about qualitative research. And it turns out in our department, we're in the middle of a project that is qualitative, and uh, none of us really know what we're doing with qualitative research. So we managed to get about halfway to where we need to be. So this was uh, Dr. Schoenfeld and Dr. Rising, and they were pretty great. So it was a great session that really went over the basics of how to um, understand qualitative research and then the bare bones of how to design and interpret uh, the data from those studies. If I could give like the one-minute capsule summary, uh, you know, qualitative research is a great way to find themes and patterns uh, that can then provide um, the anchor for quantitative studies that may address how to move uh, the needle on those things uh, with other research studies or interventions. We um, actually both both had a hand in the SAM's Got Talent session, and um, kudos to Clavon MD, who's a three from... New York Presby, who won. And if you're listening to this, you should at the same time open up a browser and go to clavonmd.com uh, yes, because he has an absurdly articulate uh, and thorough and creative approach to medical education on kind of everything from basic topics to uh, to mnemonics and, and things that you need to memorize. And uh, he was joined by uh, several other super talented groups of people, one of which is from your home shop. Yes, that's right. Um, EM board bombs, um, Jefferson, and uh, uh, some amazing virtual reality work uh, coming out of Ohio State, but just a super talented, uh, progressive uh, kind of future of FOMED and really emergency medicine. So that was my highlight of the day for sure. Yeah. And if you're working on a FOMED resource or other kind of um, social media resource, uh, consider submitting it for next year's uh, SAM's Got Talent because we really are looking for other great uh, things out there that are education-based that really help uh, our learners uh, learn efficiently. And Jeff, do you uh, go to any sessions that you thought were interesting today? Yeah, I uh, went to the Lightning Oral Abstracts Clinical Decision Guidelines. Uh, it was several uh, really interesting abstracts that were presented there revolving around the heart score. 
The first one um, that I uh, I caught was uh, by uh, Justine Seidenfield, uh, Darren Beam. Uh, the, does the heart score reduce admissions and cost in the public hospital setting? Obviously, the heart score itself was uh, uh, was derived and kind of initially validated in Swedish Scandinavia, which is not quite the exact patient population that we interact with. Uh, and so uh, this is, uh, again, really uh, uh, solid evidence that helps support the, the thought and the conclusion that um, if we can implement this heart score, we can actually reduce uh, unnecessary admissions potentially. We can divert patients wa- from what was either an inpatient or an obstay to an outpatient uh, course uh, of, of care. Um, unfortunately, uh, in the in the in the in the in this research, they they weren't able to get the more long term, uh, you know, three six month data on these uh, individuals to know whether or not their rates of MACE were different. Because that would also be, uh, you know, it's easy to not admit somebody to OBS if they come up low risk on heart. But if there are a number of other social barriers to care, they're not able to get outpatient stress tests or outpatient follow up with cardiology for risk factor modification or primary care for risk factor modification. Then those individuals may have a sort of worse outcomes uh, down down the road. They saw an almost 40% reduction in observation admission costs as well when they looked at a cost-based study. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Jeff and Casey, for the summary. And that's a wrap for today's edition of the annual meeting podcast. We will see you back here tomorrow with a couple more interviews and another wrap of the day. 